Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In the previous program, I was talking about the subject of eternal punishment, also known as going to hell. This is a follow-up to the series I produced on rewards in heaven. In this case, it is the reward of rejecting your God. And in the previous program, I was talking about what it would be like to be in hell in the sense that you would have no resolution. You would have no resolution for your sins, and your God will have effectively forgotten you. The living God will not know you, he will reject you, and he will place you there in a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels, he's got nowhere else to put you, and he will not remember you, and he will not remember your sins anymore. He will experience a sense of closure over the issue, over the subject, but you will not be allowed to experience any closure over the issues related to sin not believing the truth that God revealed, and certainly rejecting him as a person. This is what I was presenting in the previous program on the subject of eternal punishment as opposed to eternal rewards. And in this program, I would like to continue with that just a little bit more, beginning in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. This is a parable that Jesus gave that I believe does have some truth to it with regards to what hell would be like. He begins in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, where he said, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. 
Now, it's my opinion that this is a description of a place called Sheol, and that the people in Abraham's bosom will be relocated to the kingdom of heaven shortly after Jesus rises from the dead, and that this other area here, this other part of Sheol, will be relocated to the lake of fire, but that it does give a general description of what it is going to be like in the lake of fire. That's just my opinion about this description here. But that's not really why I read this. I read this about Lazarus in order to give you a little bit of an idea of what it means not to have closure. The man says, if we will just send Lazarus back from the dead, then the people will believe. Well, you know, it turns out that shortly after this, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And what did the people say? They said, we have to kill this guy because he's raising people from the dead. If we leave him alone like this, everybody's going to follow after him. And so that certainly didn't work. And you have Moses and the prophets. What I would like to show you here about Abraham referring to Moses and the prophets is that this is a way for God to describe the fact, look, I have said enough. I don't need to say any more. I have said plenty. If you won't believe what has already been said, I don't need to do any more. I'm done. If you won't believe that, you are done. There is no reason for me to continue. It is a way of saying something to that effect. But the other thing that I want you to see with regards to this is that the man says that he wants to send Lazarus to testify to his brothers so that they will not end up in this place. That is an attempt at closure, and that's mainly why I read this to you here. It is because this is a description of a person who is trying to obtain closure. He will not be set free from where he is, and he will experience no relief where he is. So, in order to obtain some sense of closure, maybe, possibly, he can experience a sense of closure if his brothers are informed because of his appeal, because of his testimony, his last attempt to do something good. He can at least remember this for all eternity while he is being tormented. He can have something that he can hang on to, and God will not let him have that. He will not even allow him to have something as simple, well, it is not that simple, but something like this. He will not allow the man to have closure. He's going to have to experience the rest of his days just like this, and the Lord will not allow otherwise. Now, if you can try to imagine the magnitude of the emptiness, the magnitude of the loneliness, the magnitude of the recognition of this, this is what's going to be in his mind. This is going to be in his mind. Now, in addition to this, he's going to experience other forms of pain and suffering. Besides this, he's going to experience unquenchable fire. There's a description of this in Mark chapter 9, verse 43. He's going to experience eternal torment, as we read here in chapter 16. It's in verse 23, where it describes the torment that he is experiencing. He's going to experience gnashing of teeth. This is a good description of just how upset and how disturbed he is. And remember, the Lord is going to forget him. He's not going to remember him. This guy is going to be gnashing his teeth on his own, 
Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 through 42, says, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. But trust me, God is not going to be hearing that wailing or seeing or hearing that gnashing of teeth for very long, not very long at all, and he will forget them. He will have them in a place that he doesn't have to look. He doesn't have to go. There will be distinctive, definitive boundaries for the souls of the people who will be there. Think about this for just a moment. You exist right now in this world, on this earth. You have a mind, you have emotions, and you have a will. This is a reasonable description of your soul. And you may not believe this, but I do. Your mind, your emotions, and your will are eternal creations. God made you to be an eternal being. To live with him for all eternity means that you've been created to be an eternal being. But you as a soul, your mind, emotions, and will that is presently contained in your flesh is confined. You are confined to a certain set of boundaries. Take a look at the world that you are in, the earth, the planet that you are on. You're not leaving this planet. If you do, you'll be back real soon. You're not going to go for very long. You are going to be here. This is your boundary. Your boundaries are defined by this planet, and you're not going anywhere. Your soul, your mind, emotions, and will are present here. You have your flesh that allows you to participate in the world in a unique way. And you get to enjoy these boundaries only for a certain period of time. When your time is up, whatever time that is, at a certain point, your life will end. And your soul will be relocated to another set of boundaries. There will be another place of existence, and it will not be in this world, on this planet, as you see it now. It's either going to be in the kingdom of heaven, or it's going to be in the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is going to be a definitive location with specific boundaries, and your soul will be there, just like it is here, and it will not be able to escape those boundaries, just like you are never going to be able to escape the boundaries that you are in here and the life that you have now. You are here. This is your chance and your place to live, and you will die here. That's a way of understanding the significance and the magnitude of hell and what it will be like to be there throughout all eternity. Now, from here, I'd like to talk about a couple of issues that people get into when it comes to the topic of hell, uh, issues with regards to whether there exists a hell or not. And there are some reasons why people do not believe that there is a hell, and they claim that they are Christians, and they do not believe that there is a hell. And I think that's possible, that a person can possibly have a place in the kingdom of heaven, even though they are confused on this particular topic. So I'm not going to argue that issue. 
But what I am going to say is that I do believe that the reasons why people believe that there is no real hell, as I have described it, those reasons are not valid. Uh, there are theological reasons, and then there are emotional reasons. There are some different reasons that people hold on to. Uh, with regards to the theological reasons, these are often related to gymnastics within the Greek language. When it comes to certain words that describe a definitive span of time and not necessarily an eternal span of time, I've looked at these arguments myself and I just simply don't feel convinced by them. I'm not going to use this program to try to describe them or get into them in detail. There are plenty of other people who have done that. Uh, from my point of view, I just wanted to add this, that languages just aren't that way, especially when you are communicating ideas about a person from one language to another and trying to retain the complexity of the meanings that are in the previous language. What I mean is, is that my understanding of my God and hell primarily comes from the Old Testament and that which was expressed by Jesus as well in the descriptions that he gave. And when you look at the Old Testament written in Hebrew, and then you look at many of the passages in Greek in the New Testament, and people are making arguments from the Greek language instead of from the Hebrew language for the most part, I just don't see that you can easily hold to those kinds of conclusions because of the limitations that exist when translating from one language to another and trying to maintain all of the complexity associated with it. And so I don't think that's a reasonable approach that most people are taking by taking definitions of certain words, seeing that there are optional definitions, and then using the alternative optional definitions for words. There are a lot of things like that that happen to try to argue these points, but to me, I think it's a better approach to look at the overall context, the overall theme that is being presented and the magnitude of the significance of additional descriptions that even though there may be some limited time of some kind, which I don't see, there are still definitive descriptions about punishment, pain, suffering, casting out, not remembering, all that stuff is present everywhere. And so I personally, I just don't go there. The other thing that I find very common is that people will say, I cannot believe that there is a hell because we have a loving God, because he is a loving God. And this disturbs me quite a bit, that we are going to say that God cannot punish a person eternally because he is a loving God. What that means is, is that if he does put someone in the lake of fire, to suffer for all eternity, if that's what he decides, if that's what he does, then he is not loving. I have a problem with that. I don't think that that is a valid definition of love. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the definition of love and why I have an issue with that. Instead, what I'm going to say is, is that there can be no love without justice. And there can be no justice without love. And I'm going to ask you to ask the Lord to give you some insights on that. I understand that this is a little unusual. In most cases, I try to give the best descriptions I can possibly give in great detail, as much detail as I can when it comes to these kinds of subjects. But this is going to be an exception. And that is that I'm not going to tell you what I really think about this. 
Instead, I'm going to give you the direction to go in and what to pray for. Ask the Lord to show you how there can be no justice without love and no love without justice. And I think that that will open a new door for you. And perhaps he may share some interesting things with you. Maybe some things that he's never shared with me. I would like to just simply state that. From there, I would like to approach this from a different point of view. And that's the point of view that I refer to as a childish attitude. Okay, so from a definition point of view about the love of God, I would leave it in the context of the issue related to justice and love. But from this other point of view, I would call this a childish reaction or a childish representation that a person is being very childish towards God when they say that he is unloving if he sends someone to hell or he can't send someone to hell because that would show that he is unloving. I would call this very childish. The reason why is because this is a perfect description of something called extortion. Extortion is something that children do a lot. They learn how to do this. It works out in this way. They say things like, give me what I want or I will hurt you. That is a form of extortion, a reasonable definition of extortion. Give me the piece of candy. Give me the cookie. Just take a child to the grocery store and run them up and down the aisles. Eventually, they're going to find something that they really want. And you watch to see what their behavior will be when you say no. They will respond, not all children, of course, but there are enough children who do this that you can find someone who does this. Just hang out at the grocery store for a couple of days and you'll see this happen. The child will say, give me what I want or I am going to create a tantrum. I'm going to have a fit. I'm going to make you miserable until I'm going to pout until you give me what I want. Now, as a child learns this and then gets older as an adult, we modify this a little bit and we do things like tell people that they need to give us what we want or we will say that they do not love us. You'll see this happen with some adults. It is the same behavior. It's just been modified. It's been morphed. It's a little bit more complex, but it is another form of extortion. If you love me, you will do this. If you love me, you will give me this. It's a way of saying you will give me this, you will do this for me, or I will say you don't love me. And that hurts a person, especially if they do love you. If they do deeply love you and you tell them that they don't, that is pain. And people know it. That is a form of extortion. You are extorting someone by saying, give me what I want or I will hurt you. And people relate to God in the same way. God had better not send anybody to hell, or I will say he is not a loving God. And that would hurt. That would hurt if he is the perfection of love, the perfection of the definition of love, and you decide to tell him that he does not love you or he does not love somebody else. That hurts. That does, especially in this kind of a context. That offends. 
That is a form of extortion. God, don't send this person to hell or I will hurt you. Now, I'm just trying to give you an understanding of the magnitude of the implications of what people are trying to say, how they're trying to justify their beliefs. I don't think that God is going to be dramatically hurt by this. He might give someone a reluctant smile, maybe, but I don't think that this is going to be a major issue. And if it is, it will only be for a very short period of time. And as I described in the previous program, he will not remember that anymore, and he probably will not remember that person anymore either. But this is how people approach him and approach this issue. They approach this subject from the point of view of, I am going to be the judge of God. I am going to be the one who decides what hell is, what it isn't. I'm going to be the one who decides what's acceptable and what's not. And if he dares to do this to his creation, then I will assert that he is not loving. And this is the attitude that a lot of people have. And the reason why I say that with confidence is because when I confront them, when I confront them with these kinds of issues, they get angry and they have this kind of an attitude towards me when I'm just presenting the issue. And I can see that they would not be willing to accept a God who sent someone to hell. To them, that would be unacceptable for all eternity. There are so many other side effects that result from this, and I won't be able to get into them in this program because there just isn't enough time. But there are so many side effects that result to this. The most common side effect that you should watch for is the lack of evangelism. People just give up. They just don't include it in part of their life anymore. They don't seek out people to be saved. And argue with them, confront them, or encourage them, or plant seeds that's just not really a part of their life after a period of time of no longer believing that there is really an eternal hell. That's a common thing, very common thing that I've seen happen to a lot of people over the years. And so I just wanted to add that as another issue that I've seen take place with regards to this topic and why people have really struggled with it. So in these two programs, what I really wanted to do as an objective is I wanted to give you an idea about what it would be like for someone to be in hell from the perspective of eternal punishment as it relates to the subject of eternal rewards and how some things are similar, some things are distinctly different. I think it's very important for a person to understand the reward side first before they get into this other side of punishment because I'm able to describe punishment much better when you understand the nature of rewards first. For the remainder of this program, I would like to address another issue that often makes it difficult for a person to embrace the subject of hell and to accept it. And that is when we have loved ones who have died, who have passed away, and we know that they are not in heaven. I know this because I personally have loved ones who I have witnessed to just before they passed away and years prior, and they completely and openly rejected Jesus, rejected the gospel, rejected the offer of salvation from God. So I'm very confident that when I die and I enter into the kingdom of heaven, I will not see them there. And this does bother me because I love them deeply and I want them to experience happiness and joy in eternity. I really do. But from what I understand about what God has said about this subject, 
I don't think that they are going to be there. I do care about them. I do love them deeply. But what I also know with great confidence is that my God loves them more and cares about them more than I ever possibly could. And even though he has to make this decision, I do believe with great confidence that he reached out to them in every way that he felt was appropriate and that they made the decision to reject him and not accept what he was offering. As a result, the decision isn't so much his as it is theirs. He did more than enough to give them a way out, to provide them with salvation from where they were headed, and they simply refused to accept what he was offering. That is how I find peace with this subject, allowing them to make their own decisions. I love them so much. I will allow them to make their own decisions for their own lives and their eternal future. So these two programs, this one and the one before it, are the two programs I have produced on the subject of hell, the subject of the lake of fire. And you can find these in the radio archive. In addition to that, do listen to the programs that I produced on rewards in heaven. I do believe that these will give you a different perspective, and I do pray that it will add to your faith. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net you